Welcome to the Dreams and Money podcast, the ultimate guide to creating and living your best life. Join me as I talk to inspiring, trailblazing millennials who are breaking barriers and being bosses in their careers and personal lives. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Dreams and Money podcast. I am your host, Norms, and as always, I have a special guest for you, and this time it's Sadiq, also known as Babs. Um, Sadiq, hi, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. So just to give everyone a bit of context and understand who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. So Sadiq serves as a risk manager who helps and supports vulnerable young adults who are or have been gang affiliated in the past and young adults who are leaving prison and at risk of offending. And he supports them in their journey towards employment and independent living as well. So can you give me a bit more information about who you are and what got you into this space of supporting young people and being a, a mentor to young men? Okay, yes, you said my name is Sadiq Bey. I'm a former criminal, so I've got quite a lot of lived experience. And I've also been in supported housing, which also um, has kind of helped me in my role. So what I do, I started off working for a supported housing organisation. And they don't just take gang members or youth at risk. They take vulnerable people generally. But because of my experience, we carved quite a niche with the gang members because obviously I could relate to them and get through to them. And from there, um, things just blossomed, you know, doors started opening. And I grew in my role to becoming a risk manager. And then externally, I've worked with the Home Office with the Knife Free campaign. We helped pilot the advocate programme with the home office and I'm also um, a workshop facilitator and mentor. That sounds like quite a a shift from, um, you know, you said you were ex-criminal and you had a lot of affiliations, I guess I would say, with the streets. Yeah. What point did you kind of pivot and change direction and figure out, you know what, this is no longer working for me and change things for the better to support other young men who were in the position that you were in before? I would say the process, in my mind, I transitioned way before I physically transitioned, if that makes sense. Uh, Yeah. I didn't believe, I didn't believe in the lifestyle that I was living for a long time. But um, when you live a certain lifestyle for so long comes your nature and you almost don't know how to do anything else. So for me, I was stuck in a rut where I knew I didn't believe in what I was doing no more. And it wasn't even working out as much. But at the same time, I've never wanted to work for people. I've never had no intention of a nine to five. That was the last thing in my mind. So, But I feel like I got boxed into a corner. You know, life was getting harder and harder. You know, things was happening. Um, I ended up homeless for a while. I ended up in supported housing. And I just realised that things ain't going to get better unless I return back to the high level of what I was doing and I wasn't really prepared to take that risk anymore so I just decided to get a job but the job had in my mind I didn't even go with the intention of helping others it was literally a winning as a sort of PA to the manager I didn't even know what I was going to do in the job I just literally I phoned a friend I said I need a job he said come to my office next week and then next week you know they're telling me a start date so I didn't even know exactly what I was going to do I just knew that it was in the office but you know it was in a black environment which was kind of the um, game changer for me that all right cool when I work with black people so it's going to be different to working in a stiff office environment so I've gone there 
And I realised that they work with vulnerable people, but I still didn't have any intention of working with them myself. I was just concentrating on the paperwork that was given to me. And then an incident happened where I had to follow one of the support workers to one of the properties. So for those that don't know, supported housing organisations, they house vulnerable people, people with like drug addictions, alcohol, dependency, people at risk of violence, gang members, all sorts of people. We house them in different properties and um, they're assigned key workers or support workers that will help them into independent living over a process of maybe nine months to up to two and a half years, depending on how quick they progress. So I was following one of the support workers to one of the properties and he was with one of the service users and the service user was swearing, shouting, cussing the support worker. So I've said, what's your problem? And we started talking. So by the time we got to the end of the road, the service user started crying. So he's already told me half of his life story and he was crying and he was, you know, he opened up and the support worker was like, I've had this guy for over six months and I haven't got as much as you've got out of him. Yeah. How did you do that? He was like, how did you do that? And I said, because I've been prison a few times. I've spent time in drug houses. I've just come out of supported housing. These people are people that I'm used to. It's not hard for me to talk to them. So he's gone back to the office and he's like, Sadiq just made so-and-so-and-so cry. The manager's like, how? And I told her and she was like, oh yeah, I forgot that you've come from that kind of background. And then she said, get a CRB done. I want you to be a support worker. And then that was it. I became a support worker. And um, due to my experience, like I said before, a lot of the gang members were gravitating towards me. You know, it was just, it, it became quite, easy for me to connect with these people and I was getting results and then from then I just progressed and I progressed and I progressed. Do you feel like clearly your experience in the past and your life Mm -hmm. has led to where you are now where you're able to support other people do you feel like in a weird way it was meant to be that way? Yeah yeah. The unfortunate events or certain things that have happened in your life have then set you up to be in a position now where you're able to be a teacher and to be a coach to the younger generation (sighs) and those who are susceptible to being potential gang members and who are in these vulnerable positions as young men. 100% I've I've felt a divine destiny from a long time from from a young age I just didn't know how I was going to get to that position because of what I was into. But I've always had a strong sense of destiny. And that, yes. So I'm not surprised by what I'm doing at all. And like, um, and I said this to you before, like you are very transparent and honest about your past and um, the life you've lived on social media, which is a little bit Mm -hmm. unusual. And a little bit weird, <laughs> but weird in a, in a good sense, weird in, in the sense that I think we're not used to people being so comfortable living in their truth and saying mm-hmm. what their past is and admitting to some of the things that they've done, whether mm. the good and the bad. It's quite interesting and almost refreshing to kind of see somebody and hear somebody that is open to sharing their past and sharing with other people for their benefit. What are some of the, I guess, the breakthroughs that you've had with these young men that you work with on a one-to-one basis? Some of them just believing in themselves. That alone is a breakthrough, you know, just to give them confidence. Because when I first started this type of work, people above me, they used to try to give me targets that I felt were unrealistic. 
for the gang members. You know, they need to do this and they need to sign up to this college and they need to do this by, you know what I mean? And I just used to say, look, yeah. leave them alone. Do you feel like the those were the targets, did you feel like those were targets that were more so quantitative versus aimed at generally improving their quality of life and were kind of shaped around it's just crunching improving numbers. the individual's life? It was just crunching numbers. Yeah. Because we're, the type of work, you know, you need to have some sort of transparency and um, for you to get funding and more money, you need to be showing results. But the problem is, is that it's not a one answer for all solution with some of these yeah. kids. I mean, some of the results I can imagine are not always shown by the numbers. Some of those results. Yes, yes, yes. That's the point I was getting at. And change yeah, that's what I was getting at their mental and change of yeah. how they're thinking, how they're doing yeah. things, their everyday to day life. Yeah, that's that's really what a lot of it comes down to because a lot of them are not going to go and enrol in a college straight away. A lot of them are not going to get involved in some of the activities that we request for them. But I've also explained that you putting these pressures on them are the reason why they sometimes don't want to engage. You know, sometimes they go missing for extended periods because of the pressure that is being put upon them where once you relax the pressure you just give them a safe space to come and have a conversation you know just even just the bare minimum of give us your one hour a week and they know that that's the bare minimum they've got to do they come in relaxed we can have a conversation i can gently challenge some of their belief systems and the way they live in their life and a lot of the time they confide in me they tell me things we have proper conversations because they know where i'm coming from as well so just even seeing a small mindset change for me is a big deal because i know that i've planted a seed and sometimes it takes six seven months before i can see the result of that seed that i've planted and sometimes it happens even after they've left the organization even while they're in prison i've had people call me from prison and say that when i come out i'm going to do this or thank you for what you said to me that time i finally see what you were saying you know stuff like that so it's not always um stuff that you could log on a sheet okay so you were invited to number 10 as you you mentioned and were part of the knife free campaign what was that experience like and how did you get to that space where you are being invited to to number 10 and yeah. Kind of engage um, on such a large scale campaign. It was um it was surreal. It was surreal because the life that I lived, it was extreme. So I would have never thought someone like me would have got into Downing Street. Because you know you do see or hear of youth workers or people doing my type of work going into Downing Street. But there's very few that do my type of work that has got to the level on, in the streets that I am and I'm you know what I mean I'm not saying that in an arrogant way but there's very few that have lived experience over an extended period of time so for me to just be invited it was like wow I couldn't believe it so basically the in part two of the knife free campaign phase two they wanted to roll out a knife free advocate program so this program was to enable everyday people with the skills to talk to youth who are at risk of violence or committing violence. So we're talking about school teachers, barber shop, barbers, um, chicken shop workers, you know, just everyday people who come across the youth. And what they wanted is to give them basic level of knowledge on the contributing factors to knife crime. So they needed experts 
people who are already dealing with these type of kids to kind of advise them on what would work and what wouldn't work on the program. So they've got about, I think about eight of us. There was a teacher, there was a, there was a school teacher, there was a, there was a mentor, the psychologist who works for the youth offending team. And then there was me with my background. So there was, a, you know, people from various backgrounds and over a period of seven to eight months and meet with the home office and advise them on what would work and what wouldn't work. So after um, a few months after it was finished, got an email and it said, you're invited to Downing Street. I was like, what? Because we didn't do it with the intention of going to Downing Street. We didn't know that was at the end of the programme. So with that being said, what are some things that as, as siblings of young men or older mm. sisters, older brothers, as cousins, as family, what are some things yeah. we can do to support young men that we feel may be at risk of being roped into that life, into the street life? Or what are some things we can do to maybe pull them back in if they already okay. are involved and are affiliated with gangs? Um, very very complex question the first thing is to minimize the push factors so the push factors are factors that are that leads to um, young men or young adults or young people being pushed into this type of life and it's not always their own decisions so we're talking um socio-economical situations um mental health growing up in an abusive home. You know, these are things that are not the fault of the young person. And these sometimes are major contributing factors as to why they end up on the streets committing violent crimes. So we have to do more as a family or parent or community to minimise these factors. But then you also have the pull factors. And the pull factors are things like social media, you know, women, fast money, reputation. These are things that, that lure the kids into this life. They're not necessarily pushed into it. But these are things that lure them. So yeah. first of all is identifying the push and pull factors and then working doing your part to minimize the push factor but then also understanding the pull factors and then getting into their mind frame because some you have to understand why these things are exciting to them but you also have to explain to them the consequences of each action. you know pull into this yeah this action and a lot of the time parents don't know the lay of the land so when you don't know the lay of the land as a parent your word doesn't actually hold weight because your child understands that you don't know so the first thing they will do is rubbish your rubbish you off and say you're old you don't know what you're talking about you don't know how it is out here so sometimes just listen to your child um there was times where my mum would try to send me places and i'll tell her i'm not going <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah. and she'll say why and i said i'm not going and and don't make it an issue. I'm not going to explain to you why I'm not going, but I'm telling you I'm not going. Sometimes listen to your children, why they can't go to some place. Do your research on what schools you're sending your children into, you know. Sometimes you're sending children to schools in the opposite territory. Now, an 11-year-old might not understand the consequence of going to a school outside of his postcode because he's 11. All he cares about is by 14 years old, he's feeling the pressure of going to a school in an area that's not his area because things start happening and I've seen this happen many times okay. so just being up to date with the situations that's going on you have situational awareness you have to prep your children 
if you're living in certain areas to for certain situations you can't even, some situations are unavoidable if you're growing up in a council estate there are going to be situations that are unavoidable we're talking about children being asked to borrow their bike to someone how how does your child deal with that yeah. how do you teach your child to deal with these situations or your 14 year old son is being asked where he's from these are questions he will be asked is so he prepared them for them early and start them early which yes. sounds like it's a lot like you said for 11 year old who probably only cares about football and yeah. coming home and playing playstation to now yeah. have these very serious conversations with them about very serious topics and potentially topics that could generally affect their life you know it's it's the way of the world and you know the quicker you prepare them for it the better you know there's a i think i read something recently that said if a child goes through trauma and hardship at a young age he's robbed of his childhood but if you shelter a kid a young boy then you're robbing him of his manhood so we're not living in um, shropshire we're not growing up in shropshire we're not growing up in these nice beautiful places we're growing up in inner london inner london for a black boy is tough yeah so you as a parent need to prepare them for the challenges that they're going to face or they're just going to have to deal with it themselves and they will probably find yeah they will find ways to deal with it which may not always be the correct way to deal with those issues exactly so you have to be able to prep them for what's to come you have to explain to them fast money and the thing is you can't lie to them as well and that's another thing that a lot of parents do is that they lie to their children or they over exaggerate about certain things and what happens when you over exaggerate is that you also have it's like with young women and you know coming from certain backgrounds and they've been told that if a guy touches you you're going to get pregnant or god's going to send thunder from the sky to kill you straight away and then Mm -hmm. once they do it and that doesn't happen then what happens next? The fear has gone because you've just given them an unrealistic right. expectation of what will right, happen. Do right. you know what I mean? So sometimes yeah. you have to let them know that, yeah, you, you can, you're going to sell drugs and yes, you might make a lot of money. You can't take that away from them. You have to explain to them, yeah, you're going to make money. However, these are what come with it. Are you prepared yeah. for what's to come with it? You don't need to exaggerate it. You just need to just let them know the consequences, the potential consequences of each action. And some consequences are not as bad as you might want it to be, but you just got to be honest with them. And sometimes you also have to let them know that some good actions can actually lead to uh, problems for you. The case in point, your child witnesses a serious crime and police want him to testify. Now, some parents will say, you need to tell the police the truth. You need to tell the police the truth. You know, that's what most parents would say. However, what's the consequence of telling the truth in this situation? Your child could be at risk for the rest of their life for telling the truth in this situation. So these are situations that a lot of parents are not prepared for because they don't have an understanding of the lay of the land. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So sometimes you have to go deeper into things and explain that you shouldn't even be there in the first place that's where the problem is it's not you telling the truth after the police have got you you have to explain to them that don't even be around at the hint of trouble yeah because you don't want to be put in a situation that will compromise your freedom and your safety you know so it's I do workshops on decision making and consequences and these are the things that we go into we go into um, 
situations and scenarios and we discuss as many possible outcomes as possible outcomes upon outcomes yes outcomes upon outcomes upon outcomes upon outcomes. good bad ugly gray whatever we have to discuss the possible outcomes just so that they're aware of the possible because a lot of the kids and parents can only see in black and white and they can't see the gray areas do you right. know what I mean? but the funny thing is is that we actually live in the gray areas so for the for the parents what is there anything that you do for them are there any workshops are there sort of leaflets that you give them to um, help them with dealing their children if for instance they've already been roped into that life or are potentially kind of dabbling in and out of that life i don't personally have a program for parents i deal with parents on a one to one basis because each problem is different you know yeah. there's obviously there's general things but one one misconception about the streets is that it's a one size fits all problem and it's not you can get 15 boys in a gang and you can have 15 different set of problems issues reasons for them being out on the streets and so you there's, they're all complex and complicated. You know, some coming up are coming from care homes. Some have mental health issues. Some are just there for financial gain. Some are there because they've got. There's so many different. So it's the same with parents. Some parents are coming from different backgrounds and different. Um, you know, some parents shield their kids. You know, some kid parents are enablers. You know, some parents are authoritarian and they refuse to budge or so for me yeah i'd like to meet each parent to gauge how they are and then start suggesting things in order to support the kids but for me once they've already gone into that lifestyle for me it's just to be a safety net for them because a lot of them have to fall before you can help them Mm. when things are going well for them it's very hard to try to steer them off their course because you've got to look into their mindset. They are having fun. They are um, making a bit of money. Not all of them, not all of them make money, but, you know, when things are going well, they're going to their parties, they're making their music videos, um, you know, things are, there's no reason for them to want to stop. But it's when tragedy hits them, you know, a friend dying, them going to prison, these are the best times to you know get them yeah because this is when they're the most vulnerable and this is when they start to question whether the life that they're living is worth living and sometimes they have to go for it three four times before they actually decide to make a significant change and some of them will never won't make a drastic change but they will start to slow down on their you know activities or they might yeah or they might shift so you might get it happens a lot. You get a lot of them that will start off with no clear direction apart from making a name for themselves, you know, doing they ju- They're just doing they're it doing. for the sake of doing they're it. They're just doing it, yeah. And then some of them will go to prison for the first time or something traumatic will happen and then their focus starts to change. So you mentioned, um, you know, like some of them will experience traumatic situations, yeah, you know, going to yeah. prison, experiencing maybe death yeah. of a friend or maybe experiencing extreme violence yeah. done upon them. And I can mm-hmm. imagine so many of these young men are probably traumatised and some of them yeah. suffering from 
mental health issues, which these days, thankfully, we are speaking about mental health a lot more and being aware that a lot of young men, well, a, a large majority of people who do commit suicide are men and young men what are some things that we can do to support and what can we do first of all is identifying their trauma a lot of these young kids have got ptsd or some sort of traumas and so just understanding it from a clinical perspective this is a mental health issue and this is a health issue a lot of the time so that would be something you know we need to do more of to just understand it from that perspective and a lot of them are self-medicating through their marijuana use whatever drugs they've started to dabble in alcohol alcohol risky lifestyle you know all these things supporting them is like i said it was it's still on an individual basis because many react to different things so i don't really like to just give a blanket answer to everyone because some yeah. things will work for some and not things work for other but I do feel like they need that opportunity to talk to people that can give them help in whichever way they need it you know I do feel like there should be more services um, available for them you know Absolutely. I feel like a lot of the time um, a lot of the time they people come out of prison with little to no support there's some organizations that I feel like do brilliant work An organization called Red Fred they work with trauma patients or people that have been admitted to hospital for shootings or stabbings. They talk to them while they're recovering and then work with them to try and change their life because they believe that those that are literally at the point of death, potential death, are the easiest to get through to and they believe they can actually make a change. And I feel like they, you know, I've worked with a few of their referees I do feel like they do give a genuine care yeah. to the people they work with. But, you know, it shouldn't always be at that point where they receive that level of help. Yeah, and I think we could definitely do a better job of just going back to your point about families and parents just being supportive and as siblings, you know, just being supportive of young men and just being much more aware. And I think sometimes yes. we're very much focused on our own individual lives that we can neglect what is going on around us and with the people around yes. us. And it does take just that extra care to talk to our younger siblings or, you know, reach out to that cousin that, you know, doesn't have older siblings and just kind of reaching out and just checking up and having those talks with them, even if it's once Mm. in a month or once every two weeks, whatever you can do to just kind of build that relationship so that they also have a safe space or somebody they feel they can go to if anything was going wrong in their life or if they felt like they had nobody else they could talk to about this. Because, you know, I can imagine... There's so much that would be going through your mind as a, as a young man and some of the things yeah. that you're facing that, you know, yeah. it's difficult when you don't have somebody else to yeah. talk to. And also, this may be an assumption I'm making, but I feel like men don't really talk to each other as they should like that in the same way that girls do. Like us girls will talk to each other, mm. we'll cry about all the BS we're going through, but I don't feel mm. like men really have that with each other. Am, am I wrong? Mm. First of all, I want to say you're right about having someone to talk to. I think that's very important. And I feel like for those that want to be that person, that is someone that they can turn to, whether you're big sister, big brother, uncle, whatever, be prepared to hear things you don't like. And if if you're not ready to hear things you don't like or aren't comfortable, don't put yourself in that position, but try and be that safe space for that person and that's not non-judgmental as possible so yeah you're right that is something that I feel is beneficial you know just having someone ask 
are you okay? And not the generic, are you okay? But the real, are you okay? Yeah. You know, that makes a difference. So what you said about men not having anyone to talk to. Um, I agree and I don't agree. I mm-hmm. feel like we do have our outlets, but we just talk in a different way, you know. I, I might not say everything, but if I'm troubled, one or two of my friends will know. If it's a serious situation, I feel like one or two of my friends will know. And I have a lot of young men that turn to me for advice. Not even young men, just people in general, men. And we spend hours on the phone talking. But I feel like they're not as quick to do so. I feel like maybe they would wait till it's the situation's developed before they feel like they can um, confide in someone. So I feel yeah. like maybe they would look a bit more inwards first before they seek counsel. Okay, okay. All right, so let's take, let's take a quick turn a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So you've also been involved in the music industry a little bit. Can you yes, tell me a bit yeah. more about that and so far what your mm-hmm. involvement has been and what projects yeah. you've been working on? Okay, so I grew up in Brixton. Brixton's the area where the degree of separation between you and someone that is famous or locally famous is quite low. Do you know what I mean? So we've always had that sense of we're superstars from young. So I feel like that kind of made our entry into the music industry quite easy because it was like we, we carried that confidence and whatever. So when I came out of prison in 2006, I was very close with a friend of mine called Carlos Miyagi and he was a, he was a popular rapper from Peckham that he used to rap with gigs or whatever. So he was like, he wants to start a record label called IPP Records and he was like I want you to join it because I used to rap in prison with him but I was more to be behind the scenes and it didn't come off the ground because he he went back to prison but um, I liked the whole idea of possibly getting into the music industry so I linked up with someone called Snakes and he was part of a rap group called SMS but I was more in terms of like developing the brand so anyway um snakes you know he's a very smart guy we had a plan for the future and we decided that it's not going to be us that's going to fulfill it it's going to be the youngers so we created a group at the time we called them squeeze section and um they were doing all right you know they had a nice little street buzz and then snakes rang me one day and he was like i want to change their name and i'm like what what's the what you want to change it to he's like section boys and i was like what and he was like trust me section boys i said that sounds like a boy band you mean section boys and he was like trust me and then changed the name not long after they did a song called delete my number and that song just went viral and it kind of blew blew them up. And at the time, I was working with Disturbing London as well. Dumi Omobarota, like I've known him for a long time. And that's Tiny Tempers manager. Right, so right. I was kind of like an advisor to them. So I was giving them tips on who to take interest in and whatnot. And then from there, things just started uh, taking off behind the scenes. So I did a lot of consultancy work with a lot of rappers. And it's just... A lot of things I did were mostly behind the scenes, apart from the section voice thing. It's like with that kind of scene, it's as if it's very touch and go. So you could stumble upon somebody super talented and it blows off and it's amazing. And then for the majority, it just seems as if it just never works out. Like it's the kind of environment that takes you in and spits you out very, very quickly. 
yeah, uh, to, to have a career in that sort of environment, a successful career in that environment, is not easy at all. No, no, it's not. Coming from the streets, you know, we're not taught the industry. We're, we have to figure things out ourselves. So, you know, even with this sexual bias situation, we ended up getting burnt and it led to court case, which is why they changed their name to Smoke Boys. And, you know, when we look back, everyone kind of effed up because it shouldn't have ended up um, the way it did. But, you know, when you're young and naive, we don't know the business. They don't know the business. We didn't, you know, do the paperwork that we're supposed to do from the beginning stages. So, we had, you know, things we started to do things in reverse. Right. By the time we're doing things in reverse, they feel like they've outgrown us and don't need us as much anymore. And then we're anymore, and then we're going off like loyalty. Like if it wasn't for us, you wouldn't you be wouldn't. here no more. Mm. Yeah, and so it, it was literally a battle between them feeling like we've taken them as far as they could and us feeling like we're owed some sort of loyalty because we gave them that platform and our street credibility enabled them to rap the way they were rapping and people accepting them. Our our credibility helped them, but not to take anything away from them. They were so talented, especially Swift and DP. First time I heard them, I knew they were going to make some noise in the music industry. So not to take anything away from them. However, we as a collective didn't know what was to come and we didn't plan for the business side of things. And I wish that we had better preparation so that when it got to the situation that it did, we were compensated the right way. Interesting. Yeah. you say that um like a friend of mine has a podcast the way he talks yeah. about the music industry and the, the ins and outs of it so for instance he talks about you know contracts and as whether the artist or the manager making sure that your paperwork is correct and pretty much a guide to anybody that's entering the music industry and doesn't really know what to do where to go the sort of things to look out for when it's one of those things you know you you hear so much of artists who who blow or go big or even managers or songwriters who were not either not paid enough for the work that they've put in or are left out when the artist once blows and is major and is making so much money it's actually a really interesting podcast i want to link it in the notes interested in that's important yeah so the the podcast called the industry playbook so it's a really really interesting one to listen to if you're somebody who's in the music industry and is in need of that sort of information because he also talks to actual entertainment lawyers who are obviously yeah. informed and they know what they're doing and what they're talking about. Yeah, that's so, brilliant. Big yeah. Demo, On another Big note, demo. you also have a podcast as we're yeah. speaking of podcasts. Tell me a bit more about Blacklisted and what it's about yeah. and what you guys do. Um, Blacklisted came about in 2017. So I'm good friends with the Free Shots of Tequila guys, especially Keith Dubé. He's a very good friend of mine. So what happened was, um, you know, Keith's in all sorts of WhatsApp groups and whatnot. And, you know, we, talk, we used to talk quite a lot, but sometimes... I would send a voice note instead of type, you know, because it's sometimes easier. So especially if I'm passionate about the subject. So a few times my voice notes to him will end up in these WhatsApp groups. And then he's come back to me and he's like, look, I've sent your voice notes to the WhatsApp group. People like your opinion. Um, you need to come on um, podcasts. 
And I'm like, what's, what's a podcast? And he's like, no, it's the podcaster. And I'm just like, F all of that. I still had a bit of an ignorant mentality. You know what I mean? So I was like, well, we're going to come on a podcast and talk about, you know. So he convinced me finally. I went on three shots of tequila quite a few times in the early days. And um, at the time I wasn't on Twitter. So he was screenshotting the hashtag with my name. And there was loads of comments saying, Babs is funny, Babs is this, Babs is that. And I'm like, raw. A few more times I've gone on there, people was just like, he needs his own podcast. So I was like, okay, my two co-hosts, Ish and Reds, are my friends. These are people that I used to sit around with and talk till the early hours of the morning. We'll just be bantering and chatting shit and laughing and whatever. And, you know, we've got natural chemistry. So we recorded our first official one. And then out of, you know, it's a big surprise. We charted in the iTunes 100 podcast chart. That's amazing. So the, our first two entries was like number 56, and I think it rose up to like 30-something. So it was, we had a very strong start. Yeah. And, so what do you talk yeah. about for anybody who's um, interested in listening to you a little bit more we, and finding out about right, what you so what, what, what the intention at first we didn't really have a uh, intention it was mostly i think we felt the pressure to be like funny or something like that because yeah, i didn't we didn't really have a plan on what we was going to really talk about it was probably going to be like popular culture but what it was is that it just developed into more black issues issues that face our communities and it was just a bit deeper and was very raw as well so we're not media trained people all three of us have never had any intentions of doing anything like this so we came out quite aggressive and outspoken and I I believe I was the first person of my background to even do a podcast you know what I mean obviously it's changed now but at the time there's no one that's been through what I've been through that was doing a podcast when I started the same as Reds Ish comes from our community so we were just raw Obviously, as time progressed, we've all kind of, <laughs> we've become a bit more media friendly. There's certain things I don't say and do say. But so you're a little bit more about, correct now? A little bit, yeah, because there's been growth. I've learned not to, I've just grown not up. to say certain things and be yeah, sensitive. Yeah. So we've had a long hiatus as well. We didn't get to 20 episodes before we had to just call it a day. And then recently we've brought the podcast to Instagram. So for the time being, the podcast will be a live show on Instagram live on Sundays, 8pm, Blacklisted UK. That sounds great. And of course, I will link that in the show notes for you to have a look at. So before we end our conversation, I have a quick fire round of questions. So I call it question time with norms. And so I'm going to ask you a few questions and you have to answer them as quick as possible. Some you can expand on, that's up to you. So are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Okay, so if you could give your 16-year-old self advice, what would it be? I would say... Calm down with women, first of all. Calm down with women. They're not running away. Focus on maximising your power and earning potential before you settle down or have children. Also, the streets is a myth. The streets is not real. There is no future in the streets. The quicker you understand this, the better. And don't mm-hmm. smoke weed. Don't smoke weed. Um, what does living your best life mean to you? 
freedom freedom that means that's what living my best life is to me freedom freedom to wake up when i want to wake up not on someone else's timetable not having a boss that's what freedom is to me not having a boss and being able to go and come as i please wherever i want to go that's freedom i love that literally as you're saying it that's literally Pretty much, that's me in the sense that I value my freedom so much. The freedom to do what I want to do. The freedom to spend time with who I want to spend time with. The freedom to buy what I want to buy and, you know, spend time as I choose to. Yeah, that's freedom. It's it's not about me. So, um, Hmm. do you feel like you are walking and living in your purpose at the moment? Um. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. I feel like I've got the vision, so I know where I'm supposed. I know the, the general direction of where I'm going. It's on the horizon, very faint dot. However, the road is full of pitfalls. Yeah, so that's procrastination, mm. laziness, not taking up opportunities, distractions. So sometimes I'm tapped into the source and I'm speeding towards my destination. It was almost like I'm flying towards it. And then there's times where I'm on my knees and it's like being in the desert with the sun beaming on me and I'm crawling towards it. So I still feel like I'm going in the direction, but it's the speed that's the problem. So sometimes I'm excelling, you know, I'm going for speed of light towards it. And then there's times I'm literally crawling and it's very slow. That's interesting you say that. I literally had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday mm-hmm. and I was just saying to her, like, I feel as though I'm making tiny little steps and it's frustrating yeah. the hell out of me because yeah. I feel like I should be running. I shouldn't be crawling. Yeah. I shouldn't be making yeah. one step at a time. I should yeah. literally be running because I know what I should be doing. But yeah. this is certain things which sometimes yeah. is my own fault. Sometimes it's external mm-hmm. factors. Accountability, yeah. Yeah, which, which is just stopping me. And it's like, I'm frustrated yeah. at myself and everything else, yeah. you know? But I yeah, relate, you're yeah. right. I can relate, yeah. And that's normal. And that's, that's the thing. Sometimes we have to realise that it is normal to come to a standstill sometimes. The main thing is to hold the vision. Don't let that vision of where you want to go slip away because that's where the problem is. Stay, keep the destination in front of you, you know, and we have to work on ways on maximising our energy levels because it sometimes comes down to energy. How much energy have we got to keep moving, moving, moving? Yeah. Um, right now, I'm low on energy for a matter of different reasons. So I know what I have to do, what I have to do to regain my energy. So it's actually down to me, the pace I go, you know, but mm-hmm. it's accountability, like what you said, we have to take accountability for when we come down to us a halt and it's yeah. work to power ourselves back up. Absolutely. You're so right. And also like what she said to me, the advice was like, you then have to figure out work at your own pace you know don't try mm-hmm. and do what other people are doing and work at the pace that other people are working at so for instance for me i'm not a morning person but i know that yeah. for some reason towards the evening is when i'm most productive i can focus mm-hmm. a lot more my it could be 12 a.m and literally my mind is buzzing with things i need to do yeah. and that's when i will literally grab my laptop and start working 
and be focused and be productive but yeah. at 11 a.m it just seems as if yeah. that's in my mind it's time to chill yeah. <laughs> but so that's what i was coming back to energy levels it mm. comes down to energy levels and optimizing your energy levels you, you can't go, go nowhere with low energy levels and that's what i realized you can be the smartest person in the world but with low energy you can't it's very difficult so it's about you've already got the answer to your issues just optimizing your energy levels and working when you're at your optimum and that's it yeah and then the final question who inspires you or what inspires you i don't have a person that inspires me i have a vision that inspires me so like i said before i've got a strong sense of destiny so i see myself in the future looking a certain way dressing a certain way walking a certain way living a certain way and my name how will have a legacy so that is what i'm working towards it's, it's my sense of destiny that's powering me forward yeah. so the vision of your future self and yeah the you that you want to be is, is what's pushing you forward yeah yeah yeah, I, love I can't it. settle where I'm, I can't settle with what I am because I believe I'm more than what I am now so if I just settle with this I would have failed because I'm, I believe I've got my ceilings high so yeah. I'll be doing myself a disservice if I don't even attempt to get near the top of my potential yes and that I've just started, you know. Finger clicks, finger clicks right now. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this is just the beginning and there's so much more to come. It's just the beginning, yeah. I wish I I I knew this at an earlier stage of my life because I I think I put limitations on myself. You know, I can't do this. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a creative. I'm not this. I put my own limitations on myself. Now I've freed myself from all these negative limitations and I believe I can do anything I actually believe that whatever I touch turns to gold I believe that whatever I put my energy towards I succeed in it literally that's been the case for the last three years whatever I put my hand on it succeeds or it takes off so I love that that confidence is powering me forward and so I'm excited for the future so how have you got to that space where you've lifted that limitation that you put on yourself, almost that glass ceiling of achievement? Yeah. How did you break through <laughs> from that for yourself? Esoteric knowledge. What does I've, that mean? I've studied, I've okay. studied a lot of secret um, sciences and secret knowledge. That is kind of, um, not like secret, like some sort of with some cult or anything, but um, the whole point, what esoteric means is knowledge that's not widely available i have a spiritual teacher and i spent a lot of time with him and he helped unlock my brain and unlock the true me and um, i've applied some of these spiritual principles in my life you know I'm, I'm a muslim also so how could i not want to achieve excellence eternal belief system is what powers me first and foremost because now i believe that i come from a line of great people that makes me walk a bit taller that makes my back a bit more straighter makes me feel regal and if i believe it as a man thinketh he becomes so now i walk like i'm regal i behave like i'm regal and it manifests in my actions and that's really it okay I don't think there's anything else to say to that. So thank you for spending your evening with me and talking to me and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you having me. 
I know, of course, of course, my pleasure. So where can people reach you if they would like to or find out more about the AP Foundation and the work that you do with young people or be supportive of the foundation? So you can Google the AP Foundation. You could, um, yes, AP Foundation, you'll get my details on there. You want to get me on the social media. It's Master Sadiq. So it's Master underscore Sadiq. So that's me on the Twitter and Instagram. Okay. And I will add your details in the show notes for anybody that wants to find out more information and support AP Foundation. And thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoyable. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any new episodes when I upload on Thursdays. Of course, share it with a friend and I'll catch you on the next episode.